0: Hey, I'm Cosmo.
1: Hey, I'm Hazel.
0: And we're students here at CSU who are extremely interested in studying the current state of food. We hope to explore some of the pressing issues regarding food management, as well as the potential solutions that should be considered moving forward.
1: We have a few shout-outs to make. A big one goes out to KCSU for letting us use their production facilities. We also want to thank Peppy Longlegs at Cloverlick Banjo Shop for recording us an amazing intro. He makes a mean banjo, so if anybody's interested, we've got the link to his website in our bio. We also want to thank all of our guests for coming on and sharing the expertise with us. Welcome to The Future of Food.
0: and welcome to the future of food today. We are here with Dr. Scott Haley, who has a PhD and masters in plant breeding and genetics at Colorado State University, and we look really forward to this interview. So, thank yeah, you for me being too. here Thanks with for us. Having me.
1: Scott, we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to the soil and crop sciences.
2: You know, it's funny, uh, this is the second time today I'll tell this story, though I'll try to make this one a little <laughs> little briefer. Uh, But uh, I did a bachelor's degree in botany at Washington State University, and I chose botany because I had an influential botany teacher in high school, and I just always loved plants. I was a Boy Scout, and I liked plants. And So um, uh, while I was an undergraduate, I got a part-time job as a student hourly in the pea and lentil breeding program at Washington State University, and that's what started it. Uh, I had tried to go into forestry, uh, thinking that I could spend my life as a forest ranger, but I couldn't get a job. And so uh, I went back to Botany and got that job and um, got some experience. And you know how it is when you're younger, right? You need to oh, yeah. try to build your resume Definitely. and start to add uh, you know, relevant experiences. And that was my first one.
1: Mm, nice. And that's very much the way of life, I guess, isn't it? When mm-hmm. you kind of stumble upon something that ends up being quite a significant path for you.
2: It is. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle. And uh, my dad was a stockbroker and you know we did, I didn't grow up around agriculture or anything. And um, but I went to uh, across the state to the land grant university, just like CSU's the land grant university. And that's where it all happened for me.
1: And so when so, you told him you were going to university for botany, he was <laughs> fine with that?
2: Or? Uh, he was fine with that. Now he told me two things uh, he, he said, cause he paid for it. And of course things were a lot less expensive back back then. But he said, okay, that's fine. Do whatever you want to do. He joked, you can take underwater basket weaving as a major if that's what you like. He said, but do two things. And one is take a basic and introductory accounting course, and one just an introductory economics course. And I did neither of those things. And (laughs) uh, I admitted that to him many, many years later, and he didn't hold it against me. Right. I just wasn't interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. So –
0: just kind of continue on your history and influence. I saw in the CSU bio that was posted mm-hmm. about you that you had served in the Peace Corps mm-hmm. and spent some time in West Africa. I believe it was. Yeah.
2: So that was the really the second thing. So I, I got to start working on peas and lentils as an undergraduate student, and then I finished my bachelor's degree in 1983, and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. Was thinking maybe someday I might like to go to graduate school, but in what I didn't I didn't know. And I was tired of school, actually. So really, I saw my only option as joining the Peace Corps. And I always had dreams of traveling to different exotic places. And so I figured that was one great way to do that. And so because I had this experience as a pea and lentil breeder, then I was assigned to a uh, project in Burkina Faso. It was Upper Volta before I got there, where we were trying to develop better varieties of black-eyed peas, cow peas as they call them.
1: Not and the band, Black Eyed Peas. That's right. That's right. So I,
2: I enjoyed that band thinking about Black Eyed Peas all the time. But it's not a big crop here, but in that part of West Africa, it was an incredibly important crop. And so I worked with a program that was trying to develop varieties of Black Eyed Peas or cowpeas that were resistant to this weed that would parasitize them. And then also develop ones that had better tolerance to drought stress. So it was a very very dry part of Africa. Nice. So that was the thing then that really lit my fire, and I saw that there was a need for agricultural research, and I had dreams initially of of working internationally in ag research. It, my life kind of took me in different direction. But As life does. Yes, life tends to. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that was the thing that really got me excited about it. So I came back in late 1985 and was shopping around for graduate schools. And actually, I told this person the same thing on the phone this morning. I applied to nine schools and I only got one offer with assistantship funding, as we call it. You may know about this. And it was here at CSU. So the wheat breeder here at that time, Dr. Quick, as we always called him, maybe we are a little more informal today than we were back in the day. But he was the wheat breeder here at CSU and he took me on as a graduate student. And so I did both my master's and PhD with him and then left for seven years and had a couple different positions. And then when he became department head, then the position opened up. And so I've been here 20 years now. Almost.
0: So wheat's been your kind of primary focus? Yeah, since
2: 1986, all but uh, 18 months, I've worked in wheat. Try. And that 18 months in between was with beans, black beans or kidney beans or navy beans. Okay. But still doing breeding and genetics research. Okay.
0: Not to backtrack too much, but in terms of the the black-eyed peas and the lentils, and specifically like fighting these drought resistance and these different mm-hmm. weeds, what kind of practices were you using
2: to I don't know Tra- find those traditional crossbreeding, traditional okay. hybridization? There was no biotechnology at that time. Okay, and so it was as uh, crop breeders have done since the turn of the previous centuries, actually going back to the eighteen hundreds. You make a hybridization or cross between two different kinds with the hopes of finding a progeny from that cross that represents the best characteristics of the two parents. Okay, Okay. That's
1: yeah, because we were talking actually mm-hmm. about selective breeding last week yeah. with Pat, and so crossbreeding mm-hmm. is obviously separate to selective breeding. No, that
2: just, I look at it as being the same thing. Right, uh, okay. It's all a matter of terminology and so forth, but, but we would call it selective breeding because after let's just say for example you have two cowpea varieties and one of them is resistant to this weed called striga, and one of them is susceptible and you you make a cross a hybridization between those two but then you grow out the progenies from that cross and then you try to select the best ones from among the progeny that can come from the cross so i mean you imagine that there may be a lot of genetic differences between these two varieties and so we apply selection to identify progeny from that cross that have the best combination of traits that we're looking for. So that would be what I would call selective breeding, mm-hmm. but it's really just depends on the, the language that you're, okay. that you're using.
0: Yeah. Just to kind of dive into your weed expertise, I know you, were, you said you kind of came under the wing of one of the other professors or doctors mm-hmm. that worked here. What else inspired you to work with weed? Is there anything about the crop or the history <laughs> of it in America that got you curious? No. No. Okay.
2: It's where I got the job. Nice. It's, it's, it's was really again just happens. Yeah. So I mean I applied for graduate funding at a couple of universities where they had cowpea, black eyed pea programs. Didn't get anything from them. I applied to a university where they had sorghum and maize, and and really it was just because my former major professor here was a wheat breeder, and he saw that maybe there was some promise in me.
0: And wheat such a crucial crop. It I is. It's yeah, something that One
2: like... out of may be of some interest to those listening to this podcast, but one out of every five calories or 20% of total global human caloric consumption comes from the wheat plant. Wow.
1: Wow. Okay. We were actually curious about that because so we've looked at where wheat is predominantly produced. And Mm -hmm. I think the top three producing countries were China, and then India, and then Russia, and then the fourth Mm -hmm. is the United States, Mm -hmm. followed by Canada, which makes sense, I guess, when you look at these country sizes with respect to their populations as
2: well. Yeah, but it's a staple crop throughout much of the developing world, throughout Eastern Europe, Western Asia, uh, South Asia, as as you talked about. It's the staple crop. So here, wheat has kind of gotten a bad name through very unfair... (laughs) Fair things. we talk about that if you like. But in some countries, it's it's their staple. It's their predominant protein source because animal protein is hard to come by and expensive. expensive, And so wheat is the most important protein source for over uh, 20% of the global population. Which is
1: interesting Um, because in developed countries, when you ask people what they consider protein, they'll say meat and dairy products yeah people don't even think of that's a cereal true. as a well, source of protein
2: Well, but they certainly do in india and yeah. pakistan mm-hmm. and bangladesh and we could count up all the all the different countries all throughout the middle east yeah
0: and that's just like a dietary culture difference yeah. i don't know i, just, I feel like america is mm-hmm. so prone to eating a big slab of meat with each meal so you kind of right. neglect other sources that's of protein right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know if you want to kind of discuss how you think wheat's been unfairly characterized or Well
2: it's it's predominantly wheat since I guess going back probably 15 years ago, started to be a target from some people suggesting that carbohydrates are bad. And there is a lot, and there's a lot of good science suggesting that bread products, wheat flour based products made from refined flour are you know not good in terms of the glycemic index and things like this. But it was really the work, the work, i say, the uh, book of William Davis, who wrote a book called Wheat Belly, which extremely inaccurately and deceptively, and uh, I, I don't want to use too many other bad words, but, <laughs> but he essentially lied in terms of, of how scientists going back to Norman Borlaug changed wheat. And the book is untrue, and he has made quite a good living off of selling this book. Now, now there is some fraction of the population, in you know, primarily in developed countries, there is some fraction of the population that is celiac, meaning that they have a bona fide dietary restriction that they get sick if they eat wheat. Now then, and, and that's hovering at about 1% in this country, and there's some indication that it is on the rise.
0: And that's to do with gluten intolerance, yes? Well,
2: there are two different kinds of gluten intolerance. One is celiac-based gluten intolerance, and then the other one is non-celiac-based gluten intolerance. So on the celiac side, like I said, it's about 1%. Maybe there's some suggestion it has increased. And then William Davis made the false assertion that that's because of what we wheat breeders did to change the genetic properties of the wheat plant, which is patently false, and I can provide information on that if, if you like. Now, on the other side, the uh, non-celiac gluten intolerance, apparently like 18 to 20 percent of the population declares or states that they, I guess, feel better when they don't eat wheat, Right. And actually, there's a doctor I know at the club where I go where he advises his patients not to eat wheat. Now, there's a lot of good vitamins and minerals in wheat, but I also saw a study that suggested that like 80% of those so-called diagnoses are incorrect. Wow. So, for example, you could ask the person, uh, so you gave up bread products, how do you feel? Oh, I feel a lot better. So therefore, it's because you gave up bread products. But did you do any other sorts of lifestyle changes? Oh, yeah, I started working out too, and I lost thirty pounds. Now, <laughs> that had nothing. Now, now, maybe that's kind of an extreme example. but so it is quite possible, though, that there is something in our environment that is causing people to become more, intolerant of gluten, and it could be related to antibiotics in our environment and uh, other things, and this is beyond my area of expertise.
0: Cool. Yeah, obviously this is kind of a tangent, but mm-hmm. this literature that you're talking about that had false information just mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of Andrew Wakefield, but in terms of the ag- agricultural side of things, mm-hmm. or it's this scientific literature that's kind of driving a narrative but doesn't yeah, necessarily have much weight uh, to
2: substantiate yeah, it. Uh, William Davis's book, Wheat Belly, has been refuted over and over and over again, but I guess it was still a New York Times number one bestseller.
0: Have scientists made it clear that they do not support this test oh, sure. or is there both yeah, sides sure, of that spectrum? Sure. I don't know. Like organic food is, but like I think there's a lot of economic motivation to incentivize mm-hmm. these products, and I don't think there are many people that are benefiting from them. There's a lot of people that claim to Well, like have I
2: said, the, the 1% of the population that really can't eat any sort of a wheat product, the celiacs, sure- they, yeah. need, they need those products. And from what I understand, it's not fun being celiac. You know? No. I mean, having to be totally gluten-free and being really careful about everything is yeah. really difficult. So scientists are trying to develop newer kinds of wheat varieties with GMO technologies and with non-GMO technologies whereby celiac could eat wheat. But it's actually those proteins which cause that effect, which give wheat its unique functional properties, as yeah. we call it. So it could, you could bake a loaf of bread or a cracker or a cake yeah. out of it or something like that. So it's kind of a difficult thing to do. Right.
1: I guess that would jump me into the next question. We spoke with Pat last week about the 10 crops that are currently certified as GMO crops. And we were quite surprised, both of mm-hmm. us, to hear that wheat is not one of those. Yeah. It I actually said
2: this at the food evolution panel. You did. I don't know if you two were there. I was and, there, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I, don't know. I asked people to raise their hand. <laughs> of course, nobody did. But, but you asked the average person on the street, and actually this is in William Davis's book, I think, about, you know, wheat's GMO and that's why, and there is no GMO wheat produced commercially anywhere in the world.
0: I'm pretty sure I was caught on the record last time when Patrick (laughs) asked us what we thought GMO crops Mm -hmm. were on the market and I Mm -hmm. definitely suggested wheat and banana and it's like, no, I gotta shut up. It got close.
2: It got very close in around 2003, 2004, Monsanto, working with public university programs like my own, but we weren't working on it here. Is more in the northern part of the country where they grow a spring kind of wheat. Anyway, they had a glyphosate-resistant wheat that was very productive and would have brought some advantages, but they chose not to commercialize that due to some different reasons. And I think many people just kind of look at wheat as being you're like when was the last soybean you ate? Right? Yeah. When was the I last? I eat
1: a lot because <laughs> oh, <okay>. I'm vegetarian, <laughs> okay. so I do eat a okay. lot. But, but tofu, I'm not tofu person, right? Yeah. Right. But
2: but the idea that wheat is something that we eat, whereas some of these other crops that are GM, either we wear them, like cotton, or they're ingredients in other things, like maybe canola oil or corn goes through an animal. So,
1: so I guess what I'm getting from mm-hmm. that is essentially wheat is not genetically modified because it already is quite sustainable and, and it's already kind of no, where we want it to be as no. a crop. I look
2: at it as, as uh, GMO wheat has not been commercialized due to public acceptance issues. With GMO. Really not so much here in the U.S., I don't think. There's polling that has been done, and, but it's in, in countries that buy our wheat. And Japan is, I think, still the number one buyer of U.S. wheat. And Japan threatened the U.S. wheat industry, and maybe I'm overstating that, but they said if you grow GMO wheat in the U.S., even if you're able to separate it from non-GMO wheat with 100.0% effectiveness, we still are not going to buy any of your wheat. And that just got farmers and the industry here in the U.S. very concerned. If you take the biggest buyer of your wheat out-of-the-picture right. prices would fall. and So it was really based on consumer acceptance. Right. And then
0: just to clarify for the listeners, I'm going to butcher this word. What would this glyphosate resistance in the wheat be for? That yeah,
2: was glyphosate, which is the active ingredient of the herbicide Roundup. Okay. So we have Roundup Ready. Is that
0: similar to the what's in the BT corn?
2: That's a different thing. So Roundup is an herbicide. Okay. And so they have genetically engineered... Well, wheat, but it wasn't commercialized, but maize or corn and soybeans and cotton and canola and probably some other things that I'm forgetting about right now. So that they're resistant to this herbicide. So then the farmer can then spray the herbicide, doesn't kill a crop, it kills the weeds. But Bt is where the plant would have resistance to insects. Okay.
1: Right, so those would be the traits, the beneficial traits that Mm -hmm. you would hope to derive through genetic modification to wheat.
2: Those are two possibilities, yeah. And those have been the two most common ones. Across all GMOs. Mm -hmm. Herbicide resistance. And insect resistance would Mm -hmm. be the most common ones.
0: And then just to expand on some of the limitations with the wheat industry, I read one article that specified how cheap wheat is and how that Mm -hmm. might have some influence on limiting funding or wheat not necessarily being something that's real interesting to certain people. So do you have any information on how the market is influenced?
2: it's in the time that I've been in wheat, which now is like a long time, (laughs) um, it's it's kind of gone both ways. So the... uh, The means by which a conventional wheat variety is developed is such that the farmer can save their seed. And with maize, corn, for example, or cotton or canola, now soybeans are kind of more like wheat, but the way those varieties are, if the farmer were to save the seed from those varieties to plant another crop, that crop would not be as good as when they buy their own seed. And, And in essence, that's what led to the establishment and the tremendous successes of like, for example, the US, the domestic hybrid maize corn Mm -hmm. seed. So wheat though, farmers can save their seed. And because of that, for example, here in Colorado, I think about 60% of the acres here in Colorado would be planted to seed that the farmers have saved from one year to the next. Kansas, maybe 40% and differs in different places. But the lack of having that prevented big companies such as Monsanto and Pioneer and Syngenta Lima Grain, there's a number of different companies, though they're kind of merging a bit now, to not want to invest in wheat. Which is interesting
1: so, because there are large regulations that go around with some of the Monsanto crops. Probably 90 to 95% of the crops that Monsanto sell, mm-hmm. uh, people yeah. purchase seeds year by year.
2: Yeah. Well, they have been, corn farmers, maize farmers, have been doing that for decades by virtue of the kinds of varieties. They've always done that. Now, soybean farmers... As it was described to me, even before Roundup Ready, Mm herbicide-resistant soybean varieties came into the market, farmers back in the Midwest did not save a lot of their soybeans. They were already buying new soybeans each year because the seeds tended to crack during cleaning and processing, and they didn't store as well as something like a wheat seed. But yeah, you're right. That is part of the equation in terms of Monsanto, but it's just not Monsanto. It's Syngenta and Pioneer and a lot of big companies.
0: Just kind of big picture, you do see wheat as being a potential GM crop in the future, just once the political climate maybe settles a <laughs> little?
2: Um, yeah, I do. I don't know what it's going to take to get there.
0: Is that something you're optimistic or hopeful for? Or is that
2: something Very much so. Very much so.
1: So you obviously view it as something that would be necessary.
2: Yes, I do. As one thing. Now, now, uh, groups and individuals that are against GMOs may say that GMOs aren't going to solve all the problems of humanity. And yeah, I understand that. But I also know that I don't recall Monsanto and Syngenta ever saying that they would, for one. But I think that form of technology, as well as other technologies, are going to be necessary in the future.
1: Especially living in a changing
2: climate right, with 7.5 billion people today. And this was, I think, was brought out really well in the food evolution movie, right, was what are the challenges by 2050? Not just that we're going to have, you know, another 2.5 billion people on the planet, but in the face of climate change, in the face of resource depletion, in the face of environmental degradation, I don't feel that we, that the planet, I'm not in charge of the planet, but I, (laughs) I, I don't feel that we can... Just say any technology, no, that's not right. We're going to take it off the table because we need technologies.
1: Just for some of our listeners who don't have any background Mm -hmm. in in sustainability Mm -hmm. science, what would be your definition of sustainable agriculture? And perhaps in the context of wheat, what practices would be
2: used? The first thing that comes to mind when somebody asks me, like you just did, what does sustainable agriculture mean? My response is it means nothing. It has no meaning. It's a buzzword or it's a buzz phrase, I guess. It's a term that has risen in the popular lexicon as meaning something that's better for the environment, (laughs) something that then farmers can be profitable at and farmers can stay on the land. It's better for the environment. It's better for consumers. It's better for our health. That's what I think it means. But where I get confused is how some people say that's for example, organic agriculture being sustainable agriculture. To me, those two things are in blatant contradiction with one another, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I would definitely like to hear how you would contrast mm-hmm. those two or how you would position organic agriculture as an option for our society yeah, or well, as not an option yeah, for well, that matter. You
2: know, we all would like to have an agriculture where farmers didn't have to put herbicides on those crops, or didn't have to put insecticides or fungicides or chemicals. Maybe we'd like to have an agriculture where farmers didn't put synthetic, this is the one that really boggles my mind, synthetic fertilizers, as opposed to organic fertilizers, manure, where farmers could do it in a sustainable, holistic way. Holistic. That's another term. It is, isn't so. It? But the reality of our planet and the number of mouths that we have to feed is that We can't do that. Now, some people would argue that we can, and I'd love to have that discussion with them. But based on what I understand about organic agriculture, and I I know farmers out here in eastern Colorado, and I've asked them, you know, what do you think about organic agriculture? And the first thing they say is, I'll go out of business. If I were to change my farm to producing organic wheat, I'd be out of business in two, three, or five years. To me, that is not sustainable. Right. And
1: it's interesting that you comment on that, because if we look at where the government subsidies are, then there's Mm -hmm. not really any organic agriculture, for example. Well,
2: you know, as I understand it, you know, subsidies are a really complicated thing, too. The conventional wheat farmer really doesn't have much in terms of subsidies anymore either. The federal government has got out of that in this country. Now they subsidize agriculture by subsidizing, as I understand it, maybe some listeners will say <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about, but they, they subsidize it by subsidizing the insurance rates that they pay, like a farmer is growing a crop and they can buy insurance on that crop in case they lose it to hail or you know some sort of storm or something. And as far as I know, Organic producers can buy that same crop insurance, in which case then they do qualify for those subsidies. So the government subsidizes the insurance rates. Okay, that's So interesting. So if somebody says to me that organic agriculture is not subsidized by the government and conventional agriculture is, I would want to dive down into that, that and, and really understand uh, to an ag economist. Yeah,
1: I think the movie Food Evolution Mm. really got me thinking about how, for example, you have Whole Foods who are mainly pushing non-GMO and organic foods. And then you have all of the other supermarkets who are just selling food that doesn't have those labels. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge monetary interest by Whole Foods in selling those. And then you compare that, and you wonder who's really pushing the anti GMO movement. Is it is it those big corporate interests? Like I don't want to name names specifically, but
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's connected. So so we talked about the herbicides and the insecticides and the fungicides. We'd all like that. And I've often talked, and other breeders who do what I do say, well, we're doing that. We're we're serving if those farmers who want to grow organic wheat. I'm serving that interest already because I'm trying to develop wheat varieties through conventional means that are resistant to the insect and resistant to the disease and so forth. So the other part of that is, in terms of sustainability, for me is weed control. And when you don't spray weeds in a field, be it maize or whatever, you're going to have weeds. The farmer's going to have weeds. That reduces the yield, and that is not a sustainable practice either. So what does the farmer do then? They do tillage on that land, meaning they plow that land. And that is 180 degrees counter to what I call sustainable.
1: Yeah, because and <laughs> trust me, I know all about that because obviously my major being mm-hmm. Master of Greenhouse Gas Management, mm-hmm. we actually right. look at how that impacts greenhouse gases how much less carbon can be stored in the soil when it's undergoing tillage practices. So, yeah, there's a whole nother side to that story. Tillage
2: is not good for the soil. And so Mm. what actually... But that's something that gets grouped with
0: conventional practices, yes?
2: Tillage? Yeah. No. Tillage would be much less conventional. For example, probably 30 years ago here in eastern Colorado, the wheat was all grown in a wheat fallow system where the farmer would do tillage in the intervening years in order to control the weeds. So then many farmers started to adapt, adopt no-till agriculture, where they relied on herbicides to kill the weeds instead of tillage. And that, to me, is a more sustainable practice, but it's not sustainable if your definition of sustainable is no chemicals. So...
1: i just wondering if I can pull you back to talking about the different varieties of mm-hmm. wheat. So... We've read that you've developed thirty one different varieties of is that wheat. What it is? Now I imagine that was you and your colleagues, not just Correct. yourself. Correct. I'm just curious, are different varieties, for example, more successful in different regions of the world, or is there another reason there's so many different varieties?
2: Oh yeah. And that's just here in Colorado and in my previous job in South Dakota. So, so those were
0: specific to those regions yep. that you were working in. Yep.
2: Okay. Yeah. Wheat is a globally adapted plant in that it's grown In the semi-arid tropics, it's grown in northern latitudes, southern latitudes, mountainous areas, and has a tremendous global adaptation. But the problems that wheat faces tend to be more local. What I mean by that is, for example, if I'm a a wheat farmer in Kenya, this is for example, I don't know why I thought of that one, but they have a disease called stem rust, which is really important there. And we could have another podcast on that, (laughs) but it's not so important here. And so what has ended up happening is that wheat varieties, the development of them tends to be for kind of a more local restricted area. We do find examples sometimes where maybe uh, I know of one variety developed in Kansas. They ended up taking it to Georgia in the former Soviet uh, Russian state country of Georgia, and it did very well, and the farmers grew it. Those are very, very rare examples with regards to wheat. So the other thing about these 31 is that we breed two different kinds of wheat. We breed a red-grained wheat and a white-grained wheat. So there's opportunities there. And then we have varieties that carry herbicide tolerance traits, which were not developed with GMO techniques. And so then that kind of multiplies the different market niches, I guess. Different varieties.
1: I'm imagining the with one being white and one being red, from my basic knowledge of vitamin content of mm-hmm. colorful foods, the red one would have different vitamins to the white.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know about vitamins, but actually it would be the opposite because a red-grained product will generally be milled into flour, into a white flour, and so then the red coat would not be used in the flour product, whereas a white-grained wheat can be whole ground. You could develop a whole grain flour. And that's actually what our white wheat varieties are used for, is to make whole grain flours, which can then be used in various baking products. And then they're higher in fiber and they've got better nutrition and these things. So it's actually kind of backwards from what you might think.
1: Right. I guess I was just curious. So is there any book that you would recommend our readers look into that would perhaps be a realistic representation of the current situation of weight? In, in the
2: nutrition side, no. That's kind of out of my area. Right. But there is a book. I'm actually reading it right now, which would be, I think, a really interesting book for the listeners. And it's called The uh, The Wizard and the Prophet. I think the last author's name is Man. I think it's a bestseller right now, but it's the story of two people back in the 20th century, one by the name of Norman Borlaug, and then the other, I'm not that far into the book, so I don't remember the guy's name. But two different competing views on what sustainability means for the future. The Wizard and the Prophet. Yeah, and and
1: we'll put the link for that in the bio. Yeah,
2: Norman Borlaug, he's likened as the wizard in the book. And the Prophet was kind of a different view on technology and sustainability. And so that's the book that comes to mind. Great,
1: thank you.
0: So yeah, we spoke with Dr. Patrick about the different crops that are already genetically modified. He spoke about golden rice and a gene for apples and potatoes that kind of prevents bruising. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you knew any other plants that could be researched in the future for genetic modification or if there's any plants that you see optimism for?
2: Well, this is, by my estimation, one of the conundrums of this idea of GMO crops is that with the current regulatory structure that we have, it costs an unbelievable amount of money to bring one of those traits and crop forward. So I'm I'm thinking like sorghum, grain sorghum is, is a really important crop in parts of the U.S. and then also in many many uh, developing countries. Now yeah, sorghum has problems just like any other crop, and there would be opportunities for that. But the problem is that. It would be difficult for the company to make money at it. And somebody quoted a figure to me very recently that it costs $300 million for Monsanto or Syngenta or DuPont to bring forward a new GMO crop. So it has to be a trait and a crop where they would have the prospects for recouping that investment. So there may be a lot of opportunities, but... It costs so much. Yeah, I think Pat said the total cost to go
1: from the start to the legalization of a genetically modified crop, I think he said 100 million.
2: Yeah, so the number I heard two weeks ago was 300 million. And this was from some business development manager of Syngenta. It's huge. It's enormous. So, you know, this isn't going to happen at the universities. Yeah, (laughs) for one. And it's almost like that has forced this technology to be used only by the big three, right? But we have this new technology, CRISPR gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9. Pat was talking about that as well. Which there was actually a major, not ruling, but an opinion that came out last week from the U.S. Secretary of Ag saying that, again, this is the second time they've stated this, saying we're not going to regulate this in the way that GMO crops were regulated. And that, it's different technology than, than GMOs, but... That shows a lot of promise for mm-hmm. developing new technologies to help farmers and consumers.
0: I mean it makes sense that they're classifying it different just because CRISPR seems to be more precise and more accurate mm-hmm. on that same standpoint. Under the definition, it still seems like genetically modified organisms to me. But yeah. obviously you gotta label well, things one way or who, another. Who
2: made that definition for genetically modified? Exactly. It mm-hmm. wasn't a breeder, it wasn't a scientist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then to so. just kind of continue this discussion of the future,
0: I don't expect you to have much expertise on this topic. You but, might be surprised. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> it <opinions>. Might be. <laughs> but we brought this up with Dr. Patrick mm-hmm. about his perspective on synthetic meats and genetically modified mm-hmm. animals. And we spoke earlier about how inefficient and expensive meats are as a source of protein. Yeah. Do you see genetically modified animals and synthetic meats as being an alternative I types do. of meats I d- I in don't general? I do. I not know
2: about genetically modified animals unless you could genetically modify them so that they don't, for example, they eat half as much and still produce the same. That's the problem with animal agriculture. Yeah. Dr. Patrick talked about
0: the salmon in South America that they've approved for genetic modification. I think
2: it's actually here in the U.S. too and and in Canada, I thought. But the synthetic meats, uh, somebody was telling me about this the other day, and, yeah, I think you're going to see that in the future because the numbers don't lie. There is not enough land area on the planet in order to feed everybody for everybody to have a 12-ounce T-bone every Yeah.
0: Day. And culturally, I think it's going to be hard to evolve eating meat completely out, so maybe finding these mm-hmm. alternatives will be an option. Well,
2: it wasn't very hard for my wife, who is vegan. I want to try it. <laughs> so. I haven't yet. But all my friends that a, try it say it's awesome. It's not awesome. as bad as you think. Yeah, yeah. I'm very so close. Baby. She was vegetarian for 10 years, and then she went vegan, and I eat vegan probably three-quarters of the time. Just continuing <laughs> yeah. the yeah.
0: same position, what's your view on insects and that as a source of food?
2: Well, you know I hear all these things. I saw people in Africa eating insects. Kids would put a lantern at nighttime on a patio and then all these flies and flying ants would fly in and they'd catch s- them. sweep them up and roast them and cool. So I, I hear these stories on NPR about insects and we're all eating insects right? already. We just oh, yeah. don't know it. <laughs> just ground actually, up in everything we yep. eat. Just
1: recently been in Mexico and we had a plate full of grasshoppers which was the first meat that I've eaten in years. Oh, really? Yeah, and I don't even know, do you call that meat? Is it still meat? I mean, it's, it's an animal product. Yeah, absolutely. So I, <laughs> I not was vegan. classifying it as meat, uh-huh. but yeah, I was like, I've just got to try this.
0: And that's another thing that comes back to those cultural standpoints. Yeah. Like, we love eating meat, but people are scared of bugs here. And like, I remember watching a video, I think it was in somewhere in South America. These kids were like four years old and got together in a group of four or five and like went off in the jungle and started hunting tarantulas. Mm-hmm. And they would get the fibers or the hairs rubbed from the tarantulas, a defense really? mechanism on them, and they'd kind of be freaking out, but they would fight <laughs> through it. And then they would roast these tarantulas yeah. and eat them on the spot and if I thought about a four or five year old or my sister for that matter going into the jungle and hunting tarantulas it sounds kind of creepy it gives you the heebie-jeebies a bit but that's just because the culture we have of bugs is different here
1: yeah, yeah. on that note thank you so much that's for joining been my pleasure. us it's been a lot of yeah. fun Absolutely. we've well, yeah. learned a lot I think today so thank you so much Scott you bet Good thank time.
2: you